All right, hello and welcome everyone to worship today on this uh, holiday weekend. We're really glad that you're here. Hey, before we jump in, I want to draw your attention to a special feature that we're going to be having at the start of every new sermon series in the future, but we just wanted to uh, draw your attention to it today as well. It's on the bottom of your note sheet. That's on the back of your bulletin. So you'll see a little section down at the bottom, and you'll be seeing this again at the start of every new series. And this is a, a, some of the resources that we've consulted in the creation and construction of these messages. We want you to see those. We want you to note them. I hope you'll check some of them out. They've been a huge blessing to us, and I hope they will be to you as well. So thank you for taking note of that. I want to begin today with a letter I received just a few weeks ago. In fact, it's dated uh, April the 17th uh, of this year, and it reads, Pastor Rex, with Memorial Day coming up next month, I've been thinking back to when I was much younger. My dad served as an aerial gunner on a B-17 in Europe during World War II. He flew 35 missions. Back then, veterans were honored, and folks realized they enjoyed the freedoms they had, including the freedom to worship as they pleased due to the sacrifice of our veterans. Over the years, much of that has changed. Vietnam brought a great deal of disrespect for the military. Many of my friends suffered greatly for their experience there. Despite the general attitude at the time, I believed in the mission. But now, I question if I did the right thing. I wonder what God's feelings towards soldiers are. The churches have generally moved away from welcoming veterans, or excuse me, recognizing veterans. And I wonder if it is uh, perceived that what we did was wrong. Many veterans went through great hardships and suffering. We were portrayed as baby killers by folks who weren't there, and I now struggle with memories and doubts. I don't know if you could include in a Sunday message sometime how God perceives soldiers. I know he often commanded the tribes of Israel to go out to battle, but I'm not sure about the American soldier. And it's signed, yours truly, an old soldier. I was really moved by this letter and quite choked up by the humility of it. Now here is a dear veteran kind of sifting through his motives and his actions and wondering, you know, how does God perceive it? How does God feel about it when we have noble motives, but we then later begin to question perhaps some of the actions that we took? Well, I think that's a great segue into today's message. Have you ever wondered why you do the things you do? You see, if you read Scripture carefully, it says a lot about motives. In fact, God says through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 that one day we will be evaluated, we'll be judged by God, not only based on what we did, but why we did it. So you see, God wants us to do the right things for the right reasons. So I thought about that and 
our team got together and we created a little matrix that I want to show you now to try to help set a foundation for today's message. I'm just calling it a matrix of motives. And what you see here are the two axes. One is a vertical one, which kind of describes the motives, good or bad. And the other is a horizontal axis that describes actions, whether they are good or bad. So let's give a little thought to this now. The worst possible quadrant here we could live in would be quadrant three, bad motives and bad actions. This might represent the person who knows that adultery is wrong, but totally out of selfish motives, what's in it for them, they go ahead and commit adultery anyway. Or this is the person that hates someone and they want to see them suffer. That's their motive. And so what they do in terms of action is they slander the person. They tell some lies about them so that people will think badly of them and turn their backs. Bad motives and bad action. This is the person who knows that stealing is wrong, but out of greed, they choose to steal anyway. Now, I don't need to tell you that many people in our world live in quadrant three a whole lot. Bad motives and bad action. But I want you to consider another quadrant here. That would be quadrant four. Bad motives, but good actions. You know, that happens quite a lot. Let, let's consider, for instance, going to church. That's a good action. But do you know that some people go to church with less than noble motives? Did you know that? Good action going to church, but some people go to church and worship God or be a part of a service like this out of a sense of duty, or even worse, out of a sense of guilt. Or here's another illustration. I'm always faithful to my wife, thanks be to God. I'm always faithful. And I can tell you without a doubt that most of the time I'm faithful to my wife because I love her with all my heart. But there's probably times when I'm faithful to her because I fear the consequences. I fear the negative things that would come out of my unfaithfulness. Motive, faithfulness, that's wonderful, okay? Excuse me, action, faithfulness. But the motive might be fear. And so often in life, that's the way it works. We may do the right action but have the wrong motive. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 that some people actually preach the gospel with bad motives. He said some preach out of envy and strife. They have this selfish ambition and that's driving them as they preach. Preaching the gospel, good action. Selfish ambition, very bad motive. But then there's this first quadrant. Let's just think for a moment about that. Do you know it's possible to actually have good motives but have a less than good action? We consider people who kind of live in this quadrant as being misguided or naive. You might think of the legendary Robin Hood. He stole from the rich to give to the poor, right? Concern for the poor, good motive. That's wonderful. Robbing the rich, not so good action there. 
or a person here might be the one who bombs abortion clinics. Concern for the unborn, wonderful motive. Very good. Bombing a clinic, probably not the best way to show your passion for life. And I believe there are many people, by the way, like this wonderful veteran who wrote this letter, who out of the best motives, so noble, and God is so pleased. And I've had many soldiers tell me, I believe in the cause of whatever conflict or war in which they were involved, or if they served in peacetime, same kind of situation. I believed and I wanted to honor God and love my country and protect my family and maintain our freedoms. Awesome. God gives you an A+. That's how he feels about soldiers. I hope you understand that today. He loves soldiers. But I've had many wonderful soldiers, both active and retired, who told me, while my motives are great, that doesn't mean that every action I had was good. Sometimes I did some things that were really, really bad, and I didn't need to do them, honestly, in order to advance the cause, okay? But then there's one final quadrant, and that is quadrant two, and this is obviously the best. Good motives and good action. This is where we need to live. This is where we care for people and serve them because we love God and we love them. And we want God to be honored. We want people to flourish. And so we do it out of pure motives, wonderful motives, and our actions are good. This is obviously, as we mature in Christ, where God wants us to spend our lives. I like this wonderful quote from Francois Fenelon from the 1600s. He says, let us remember that God looks in our actions only for the motive. The world judges us by appearance. God counts for nothing what is most dazzling to men. What he desires is a pure intention. Well said. Now, with that as a foundation, I want us to jump in now with a vengeance to some of these verses today. This is a long passage. We're not going to be able to read every single verse. I hope you will on your own. But the one theme that perhaps ties all of this together is motivation. So let's look at some of the things that are going on here in Luke chapter 11. First of all, I want you to see the Pharisees accused Jesus of being in league with the devil. Verse 14, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Now, maybe you remember the old novel, Lord of the Flies, or the subsequent movie that followed that, the theme of the novel and the movie was the dominance of evil in the human heart. Well, guess what? Beelzebub literally means Lord of the Flies. And these Pharisees were accusing Jesus of living in quadrant four. They were saying, Jesus, you're doing a good thing, driving out a demon. That's good. You're helping a person. But you're doing it because you're in league with Beelzebub. Your motives are evil, living in quadrant four. Have you ever been accused of that? I'll bet you have. Oh, yeah, you give your money away, but it's only for the tax break. Oh, I know you serve the poor and do some good deeds, but it's only to manage your image. 
Yeah, I know you go to church, but you know what? It's selfish. You just go to build your network and your business contacts. You know what's maddening about those kind of accusations? Whatever form they come to you, you can't disprove them, can you? Because anytime someone makes an accusation related to motive, it's intangible. Only God really knows the motives, right? Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And that's why God alone is the only judge qualified to evaluate our motives. And one day, Scripture says he will. Secondly here, I want you to see that Jesus gives a devastating response to their accusation. Verse 17. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan's divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Shorthand, Jesus is saying, you guys are irrational. One minus one does not equal one. If Satan is opposing himself, he is doomed. Verse 19, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, by the way, all the commentaries point out, that phrase, finger of God, is really a reference, an allusion back to the book of Exodus, where the Pharaoh's magicians, who could keep up with Moses, miracle for miracle, for a little while, but then they finally said, no, this is the finger of God. Same phrase used here. This is the real deal. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, you Pharisees and your followers you do your own exorcisms and try to drive out demons, but you're not accusing your own Pharisees, your colleagues, of being in cahoots with Beelzebub. Then why are you accusing me of that, of being illegitimate? And there, in the next verses, Jesus pictures Satan as a strong man in armor guarding his wicked palace. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. Jesus is really saying here, your critiques are actually backhanded compliments. By your critique, you're acknowledging that I'm driving out demons. That means that I'm more powerful than Satan's power. Next, we see that Jesus challenges the motives of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He begins to get right at their motives. Verse 37. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. Now the motive of the Pharisee here seems not to, be, to get to know Jesus, but rather to try to trap him in some devious way. But the Pharisee, Noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal was surprised. The washing here is not the normal soap on the hands just to get your hands clean. This washing was a religious ritual 
that the Pharisees did. And they had all kinds of rituals like that that were outward ways of showing we are pure, we are clean. But Jesus is challenging them. He's saying on the inside, you're not so clean. Then the Lord said to him, now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you were full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? He's saying you do all these external things to look good to people, but inside there's corruption and greed and deception, and it's repulsive to God. Jesus then even addressed their tithing practice. This is interesting. He said, you give your resources, but your motive is totally selfish. Verse 42, woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. By the way, if you ever wondered, does the New Testament really commend tithing? Here's one example of it. Jesus himself said, you should have practiced the latter, what's that? Justice and the love of God. Make sure you're all about that. You should have practiced that. Without leaving the former, what's the former? Tithing. Without leaving the former thing, tithing, undone. He's saying, look, you're admirable when you tithe. In fact, you guys are fastidious at that. You even clip off one-tenth of the mint leaf precisely and tithe it to God. But you've lost the bigger picture. Your motive is that you want everyone to know that you're so put together, that you're so sacrificial because you're so generous. It's funny. Uh, we have a growing percentage of people at Grace who when they tithe, when they do their giving, they practice generosity here. They do it online. And I think that's an awesome thing. Actually, I think that that's probably the best way to do it. In fact, Debbie and I are still old school with our giving, uh, uh, putting envelopes in with a written check and all that. Uh, but one day we may make that shift too. I actually have pastor friends of larger churches where 80 or 90% of the giving is done online. I know a few churches that have actually stopped even passing the plate because they just want everybody to give online, and I respect that. But I've had some of you who give online <laughs> say to me, and this is kind of hilarious to me, they'll, you'll say, hey, you know what, I do all my giving online to the church, but when that basket comes by, I feel really paranoid. You know what I mean? Because nobody ever sees me put anything in. And so I've had some of you say, you know, when that plate comes by, I want to give up and give a little lecture to all the people around me and go, look, I know look, I look like a miser right now. I know I look like I'm cheap, but I just want you guys to know I've already given online, okay? And we're that way. When we're generous, we want people to know it for God's sake. Because we want to get the credit down here. Jesus goes on in verse 43, woe to you Pharisees because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. In other words, you're trying to lead people in such a way that they'll only think highly of you. You're really into image management as we would say in our culture. God sees the heart and he knows your motive and the truth is he's more concerned about your character. 
Woe to you, because you're like unmarked graves, which men walk over without knowing it. And he goes on and on addressing the hypocrisy. In fact, he uses the word hypocrite or hypocrisy about 20 times in these verses to talk about the motives of these religious leaders. Their problem, they were not living in quadrant two. They were living more, many times, in quadrant four. They were doing some good things, but their motives were less than stellar, less than noble. They were really doing it for more selfish reasons. But let me say it again. God wants us to do the right things for the right reasons. So how can we become more like that? In the minutes we have left, I want to give you a game plan. I'm going to suggest a four-part game plan, just four practical things we can take away today if we really take seriously that God is looking not just for the right action, but the right motive that goes with it. Because trust me, nobody acts in a vacuum. You may think some of your actions have no intention behind them, no motive whatsoever. Better check that again. We always have some kind of motive whether good or bad, behind our actions. And often our motives are mixed, right? And that's what makes it so difficult. So let's look at these life lessons together. And I pray that you will take seriously like I do, that God would grow you so that you would live more and more and more in quadrant two, where your motives and your actions are noble. The first thing I would suggest, if you really want to move that direction is to examine your motives regularly. This is something that I do on every prayer retreat I take. I do it at certain times of the year, usually around the end of the year, usually around my birthday. It's one of the things that I just go through and I just think of all the major things in my life and I say, God, am I doing this out of a pure motivation? Because I wanna glorify and honor you or have I become selfish? In this, I would challenge you to ask those same questions. I have a number of books in my library from H.A. Ironside. He's an old preacher from a couple of generations ago. He was very popular at conferences, and he preached at a wonderful church in Chicago. But he acknowledged and he knew that he struggled with pride. And so he thought, I need to do something to combat my pride. What could I do? I've got to do something humiliating. And so he decided, after some thought, that the most humiliating thing he felt that he, Harry Ironside, could do is to go down in inner city Chicago and wear one of those sandwich boards all day long, advertising, being a human billboard for some business or something. And so he did. He went down and he wore that advertisement and walked the streets of Chicago all day long. And at the end of the day, he was utterly exhausted. And he got home. And he said, I believe that's the most humiliating thing I could have ever done. And then he thought, you know, I'll bet there's not a preacher in Chicago that would have done what I did today. And he realized that he was actually proud of his humility. Have you ever been there? Maybe you've heard of the preacher who was praised by his church board and given a gold lapel pin that read, big old gold pin, humblest pastor on earth. They rewarded him with that, but then they fired him when he wore it one Sunday. 
Examine your motives. Do you ever do this? Why did you come to church today? Why do you want to be excellent at something? Is it really to honor God or is it just to boost your image? Do you serve people and show mercy in Jesus' name because you honestly love God and care about people? Or is it just so people will say, she's the most compassionate woman I've ever known? Why? God cares about the why. And he wants us to live in quadrant two where our motives are noble as are our actions. Now, if we're brutally honest, it can be a little tough to examine your motives honestly. Because when we really get raw, when we really get candid, when we really get real with ourselves, we have to acknowledge just about everything we do has some sort of selfish ulterior motive in it. Almost everything. Hopefully, by examining your motives, it will remind us that we need God's amazing grace. Because when we look in the side, we realize, wow, I got big problems. It's just like the song Amazing Grace says, amazing grace, how great the sound that saved a wonderful person like me, right? No, that saved a wretch like me. And when we examine our motives, there may be nothing clearer than that, better than that, to show us that our hearts can be pretty wicked and we realize we really need God's grace. Secondly, I would urge you to commit to be sunshine judged no matter what. You say, what in the world does that mean, sunshine judged? It comes from a compound Greek word found in Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians. Let's read the verse, and then I'll explain it to you. Now, this is our boast, Paul writes. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. Now, the context is Paul was being accused of being duplicitous. He says one thing, his critics said, but he does not. This is the Apostle Paul. They're saying this guy is not sincere, he's not real, he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth. And Paul said, no, no, I'm on the up and up. I have been utterly sincere. And that's the word, highly krenos. It literally means sunshine judge. Here's the background of it. In the ancient world, people would make fine vases that were very valuable. But sometimes when they were baked in the kiln, they would get cracks in them. And unscrupulous merchants would take pearly white wax and fill those cracks with it so that in a dark shop, you wouldn't even notice there was a flaw there. It was only when a customer took that vase, took that vase outside into the bright light of the sun and held it up and began to turn it that he or she could see the cracks that had been covered over with the wax. So honest merchants would often advertise their pottery as highly krenos, sunshine judged, no cracks. Paul says, that's the way we need to live. That's our goal. That our service for Christ would be performed with excellence and with the highest motivations. I think we all struggle with that. I know I do as a preacher, as a pastor. 
I have to constantly struggle with, why do I preach? What is my motivation? Is it, is it to entertain people? Is it to please people? Or is it to really honor God and get his truth across? Or people are constantly saying to me in between services, hey, would you pray for this? Would you pray for this? It's very easy just to slap people on the back and say, oh yeah, I'll pray for it, brother, when you have no real serious commitment to praying. I don't want to be that kind of person. Or when somebody comes up to me and says, Pastor Rick, you are such an awesome preacher, man. That is the greatest sermon I ever heard. That ought to be in print, man. Sometimes you just need to say, hey, it already is. It already is. Thanks for your affirmation. I'm glad I could share it with you. We need lives that are sunshine judged, authentic and sincere to the core. He goes on here in the starting verses of chapter 12, and he says, Luke says, Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed. Again, notice the theme of motivation woven throughout all this section. He's talking about hidden inner motives that are going to be disclosed and revealed one day. There's nothing hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. And what you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. Now, folks, I'm going to tell you, friends, there's few things in Scripture I know that are more sobering than this idea. That the darkest, deepest secrets of our lives, those things that we're just not proud of, one day God is going to judge not only what we did, but why we did it. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. Wow. Our motives are going to be exposed. At that time, Paul says, each will receive his praise from God. A third thing I would recommend, if you really want to live in quadrant two, where your motives and your actions are grand and glorious and positive and good, I would urge you to act the way you wish you felt. Oh, this is so practical. But I want you to listen really closely right now. Here's what I've learned. If I had to do cliff notes on several decades, or a few decades now, maybe I'm aging myself more than I should, a few decades now of meeting with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, no exaggeration, I would say that most people live by feelings. That's my conclusion. Most people in this world are driven, they are mastered by their feelings. Their feelings are like a taskmaster that drives them every day. And if they think they ought to do something, but hey, they know it's the right thing, they know it's the obedient thing, they know it's the noble thing, but they don't feel like doing it, guess what? They don't do it. That's the way most people live. They let their feelings be a barometer for their soul and determine their actions. So here's what I'm concerned about today. 
If you really take my advice in this game plan and you start examining your motives, I'm afraid some of you may get all freaked out. You may throw up your hands and go, Rex, when I got honest, I realized I'm kind of like these Pharisees. Boy, I've got all kinds of selfish motives inside. I do good actions at times, quadrant four stuff, but it's for all kinds of ignoble motivations. That's me. And I'm afraid you may be tempted, listen now, to throw up your hands and say, I quit. I just quit. I can never do the right thing for the right reasons. I'm always just going to be a total mess. Listen, take heart here. The right action with a less than noble motive is better than the wrong action. And the right action with a less than noble motive is better than no action, for God's sake. Learn to act in life the way you wish you felt. For instance, if you don't feel like showing the fruit of the Spirit toward your mate, if you don't feel, for instance, like being kind to your mate, be kind anyway. You say, Pastor, I can't do that. That would be hypocrisy. No, that would be obedience to God. Hypocrisy is not acting contrary to the way you feel. Hypocrisy is acting contrary to the way you believe. Big difference, world of difference between those two. Constantly in the Christian life, we're called upon as we walk in the Spirit to act contrary to the way we feel about something. So we show the fruit of the Spirit to people whether we feel like it or not. We may feel like we disdain them, but we still show kindness. As William James famously said, act the way you wish you felt and eventually you'll feel the way you're acting. And one final practical principle I'll leave with you, because this is really the bottom line. We can't change ourselves in a revolutionary way. Only God can. So the final thing is, ask God to purify your heart. Two young adults were involved in a fender bender and at first they had harsh words with each other as they each got out of their cars. They were very accusatory, but then they calmed down and decided they would call the police and let the officials settle this matter. Wise choice. But as they talked, they found they had a lot in common. Uh, both of them were single. Both of them were kind of open to a new relationship. And so uh, actually the conversation became rather warm. And the young lady suggested, you know, maybe this was God's will that we have this accident and this chance meeting like this. And the young man, who was very attracted to this young woman, agreed. And she said, well, it's kind of foolish, really, for us to just stand out here in the cold. Maybe we can just go sit in my car. It'll be at least a little warmer in there while we wait a few minutes for the police to, to get here. And so they did. And they, they sat in the car. She said, well, I just happened to be at the store. I, I just picked up a bottle of wine a few minutes ago. And hey, I've got some paper cups here. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe we should just have a toast to this chance happening that we think God may be in. And so he agreed. And so he eagerly gulped down a whole big old cup of wine pretty fast. He kind of looked at her and said, aren't you going to drink yours? And she said, no, I think I'll just wait till the police come. <laughs> Ask God to purify your heart. 
There's a strange verses here in verse 34 to 36. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are good, your whole body also is full of light. But when they're bad, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be completely lighted as when the light of a lamp shines on you. Now, most commentators admit they have no idea what that means. That is honestly one of the most mysterious sections in all the Bible, and part of that appears only in Luke's gospel. But among the many things it may mean, surely God is saying this, look, saturate your heart with the things of Christ, and the light of Christ will shine through you, and you will want to do, want, your motives will begin to change. You'll want to do the right thing. Legend has it that some years ago, a man named John Long played football for the University of Illinois. He was a senior now, and they were ready to play their final regular season game against a really good opponent. And the University of Illinois had not been to the Rose Bowl in 20 years, but this year was special. They'd had a good season, and if they won this game, they're probably going to be in the Rose Bowl. So excitement was high in the Urbana-Champaign area. On Friday afternoon after practice, John Long approached his coach all excited and said, Coach, you got to start me. you got to start me in the game tomorrow. The coach looked at his player a bit surprised. He said, John, you're a wonderful young man. You've done everything I've asked you to do as a player, and now it's your senior year, and you're a wonderful student as well, but John, you know that you haven't started a single game. How could you be so bold as to make a request like this in a game which is so significant? And John Long said, Coach, I know everything you're saying is true, but you just have to start me tomorrow. And the coach, feeling the pressure, tried to buy himself some time, and he said, let me sleep on that. Well, major college teams often stay in hotels the night before a big game to try to get away from all the craziness on campus. So the next morning, Long knocked, pounded, in fact, on the door of his coach early in the morning. The coach came to the door, and the coach said, I tell you what, I will start you on the opening kickoff. And that way, technically, you're starting the game, John, but that's all I can concede at this point. Well, as fate would have it, the Illini kicked off, and John Long ran faster than anybody had ever seen him run. I mean, he was like a rocket. And he hit that ball carrier at about the 18-yard line with a bone-jarring tackle, and then John leaped up with his fist clenched, ready for the next play. Well, the linebacker on the team that John Long played behind always as John sat the bench was about to run into the game, but the coach grabbed him and pulled him back and said, no, I've got to give him at least one more play because that was an amazing hit. And so on the next play, the quarterback on the opposing team pitched to the tailback who went ran wide. Then the tailback stopped and threw the ball back to the quarterback. It was a bit of a misdirection play. But John Long, from his linebacker position, diagnosed the play and in a split second stepped in front of the receiver, intercepted the ball, and without being touched, ran it in for a touchdown. Six to nothing. 
the Illini missed the extra point, but they were still ahead six to nothing. And then the linebacker started to go in, but the coach said, I can't take him out now. He just scored a touchdown. And in fact, he never took him out. John Long was all over the field doing people things people had never seen him do. He dominated that football game. Finally, the coach substituted the starting captain linebacker for one of the other linebackers just so he could get in the game. At the end of the game, the 6-0 score held up, and the stadium went berserk. There was pandemonium, and all the players and the coaches streamed into the locker room, and the coach saw John Long over in the corner, all by himself, weeping. Just all by himself, crying like a baby. The coach went over and said, John, what's wrong? What's wrong, man? We just won. We're on the way to the Rose Bowl. You dominated that game. You played like no one knew you could play. Why are you crying? John said, Coach, you know my dad's blind, right? Of course. Your fraternity brothers have brought him out to the side of the field many times so he could listen to us practice. John said, well, my dad died on Thursday evening, and I figured that today was the first time he ever had a chance to see me play. Now, think of that. Here's a guy that for four years rode the bench, all the while having the ability to dominate a football game. But why did he not reach for greatness? Because he needed the right heart motivation. And as we play this game of life for our Lord Jesus Christ and represent him well, that's what we need more than anything else. A right heart motivation. The right things for the right reasons. Thank you, Lord, for your transforming word and that your spirit motivates us to do the right things for the right motives. Help us to live in quadrant two. Help us to live that way, glorifying you every day as we seek to represent you well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Rex. I have to admit, I didn't see that coming at the end. Um, I would like to invite our ushers forward to collect our tithes and offerings this evening. And if God is doing a work in your heart, then maybe you didn't see that coming either. Maybe you need to examine some of those cracks that may be filled with wax. You need to get your heart right before the Lord. We have a prayer corner beneath the cross where our prayer team would love to meet with you. They would love to pray with you. They love